You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name is Ian, as always. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli, and we have a guest that we're very excited to bring on today. Anthony, I'll let you take it away. No, I'm not going to introduce him. Ryan, you introduce yourself, man. <laughs> What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm Ryan Ward. I'm uh, the Director of Player Development with the Tri-City Storm. I also run our, our youth organization here in Chicago, uh, the Windy City Storm. I spent a few years with the Leafs, four years up in Canada, two years with the uh, Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound. So excited to be on board here, and uh, thanks for having me, fellas. So before we start talking about NHL-related things, I have, to, I have to put it to the USHL. So I, I was reading up on it a little bit today. Fourth straight year, 50-plus players from that league have been drafted at the NHL draft. I don't think enough people are talking about how good this league is getting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the league, like watching, obviously um, I haven't been a part of it for very long. This is my second year coming up here, but when really digging into it this year, like the league, it's a good league. Like it's, it's, it's older a little bit. It's uh, the, the players are, are legit. Um, there's no, there's no room. Like it's, it's, it's a little bit closer because of, uh, of it being an older league it's a little bit closer to getting ready to play college hockey or pro hockey um it, it's it's a good league and it's fun to watch like it's fast it's it's heavy it's physical it, it's a fun it's a fun league to watch and um I've definitely been I mean coming from obviously major junior like you know I love loved working in the OHL it was one of the highlights of my life but but watching the USHL like it's a good league to to be a part of and statistically, I always love trying to measure things as a nerd. That's what I do in life. So a few years ago, I tried measuring league strength. I looked at the NHL e-formulas and I wanted to update them because I felt like the translation factors weren't necessarily accurate. And in doing that research, I found that the USHL was actually a much better league than I had anticipated. I know in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, they weren't generating much NHL talent. And if they were, it was usually from the US National Development Program. Sure. But in recent years, in the last five to 10 years, it's much closer to the WHL or the QMJHL or even the OHL, like you mentioned. And one player who comes to mind now that I think about that is if you can score at a point per game clip, like a Matthew Nyes did this past year, it's incredibly impressive and it's something that we should be taking into account. That looks like a very good pick for the Leafs in the second round. You've obviously worked with them as part of the development staff. I'm curious what your opinion is on the player, because when I look at a six foot three player, who's 200 pounds, I, I usually that player gets overrated. Usually that player is, you know, gritty, strong, tough in the corners, but doesn't have the speed or the puck skills to keep up with some of the players who go in the first round with Matthew Nyes. I feel like he actually has some of those tools that can help make him a productive pick in the second round. So God, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say, because he just killed this last tournament he was in. And I know a lot of Leafs fans are excited about the pick. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I, I think that Nyes has like, and again, like, the guys in Tri-City, the coaching staff did a phenomenal job, Anthony and Troy and, and, and Ethan and those guys. Like, Nisey has a great blend of, of pro hockey talent, right? So Nisey, his release is unbelievable. He's, he, he's an unbelievable teammate. He works his, works his butt off. If you, look, if you look at what he's doing, even in the World Junior uh, Summer Showcase, like, he's a stud. You, you know, and I think he had a tournament. He looked really good. Yeah. I he mean, his, the goals he scores, like those are, those are high end goals. Like he gets to the front of the net. He, he's not afraid. He, he has an unbelievable release. And, and the biggest thing, like when you look at, at these kids like, that get drafted, like 
you know, Nisey, Nisey, yeah, it, it, all things being equal, you take the bigger guy, but like a kid like Matthew Nyes, like he's, he has the potential to, to do it all, right? Like he can be a power forward. He can be a skill guy. He can, he can, you know, muck it up and change the momentum of a game being in on the four check. Um, and, and that's, what's, that's, what's exciting about Nisey. And you, he's just such a big human. Like he's got a big head, a big butt, a big, you know what I mean? Like but he, he, like he, the guy, he, he can dominate games. You probably might not know this, but something that's kind of come under, under fire here in Toronto a little bit, especially this off season is Kyle Dubas has acquired a number of players that he has a Sioux St. Marie connection to. Like it's starting to become a bit of a running joke here. Like did this guy play in the Sioux? He's probably coming to Toronto and I never really put this together for some reason until we actually started recording this podcast, which I feel kind of stupid about now. But the you had you had this player. I mean, there's a, a pure connection here. Like you worked with Kyle Dubas a number of years. You worked in the Sioux. I don't have to get into the like how deep your connection is with him. I would imagine he spoke to you quite a bit about him before he ended up making the pick. You know, honestly, he didn't speak to me at all. And come and, on, yeah, I swear, like not a think- word not a word. And, and, you know, I think what, I don't know if you guys know the connection, but Anthony Noreen um, was with us in Toronto as well with, with the Orlando solar bears as our ECHL head coach. Are you going to tell me he didn't talk to him either? Like he just didn't talk to either of you guys. (laughs) I mean, no, he, I Doobie reached out to Anthony. Um, Anthony was his head coach for the last two years. Um, you know, he, he would provide much deeper insight, obviously on, on Nisey, but, um, but yeah, there is, it's funny, like we were talking about before we started recording, I think there's the, the connections in hockey are, are very, very small, regardless of, uh, kind of any stone you uncover here. Yeah. I mean, it was the same way too, right. Uh, to some degree, I would imagine with Rasmus Sandin, who was drafted yeah. and, and you had him in the Sioux. I like, I would imagine that he reached out to at least somebody there that he knows i mean he's got to just have a running line here at this point yeah i I mean i think uh, i don't want to speak for how kyle does things but but obviously like like raz and and the way we played and the way i think kyle and the leafs uh want to play or or strive to play and i think that's ever evolving with any coaching staff and, and gm but you know like like you know, Raz, Raz was a guy that obviously we had Mac Hollow was a guy that we had that um, played the the way that I think, you know, if you look at Sheldon's teams with the Marlies and, and the way they want to do things and possess the puck, like those guys are, are going to be, you know, as young as, as they are now, like they're still maturing, but those guys are going to be cornerstone part of that organization. Like Raz is, he's so smart. He's like having another coach on the bench. I remember, I remember our, I ran the power play in the Sioux and Raz would come off the ice and, take put his helmet up like this and take his gloves off and wave me down and say hey Wardle, like we should make this adjustment like he was he was raz the guy that like you know he he fits in he's he's an unbelievable kid unbelievable teammate but you know we, we want to play that style you want to have the puck we kind of talked about it you know what you go through in youth hockey but um you know i think obviously there's a you look at the last stanley cup winners like there's a great blend that you have to have. Like you have to be lucky and you have to have the perfect mix of, of players to, to win. And um, obviously Kyle's doing a great job. Like I have the utmost faith. He's going to be unbelievable. And how much are they involved after the player is drafted? Because I, I would actually tend to think off the, off the cuff that the, the Leafs are actually handle things pretty well, but I've definitely heard some horror stories of, 
you know, NHL GMs calling a team and saying like, why isn't my guy getting power play one or whatever? And I'm, I don't think the Leafs do that at all. So I'm, I'm actually just curious how much will, will you guys be in contact with them if at all in the upcoming season? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like not like Matthew's going to play for Minnesota. So I'm sure that their development um, team will be largely intact. One thing that I think, and, and that they did this way back when I was there, the, the Leafs do an unbelievable job of, of making sure that every one of their players gets love and has attention and, and has a plan. Right. And I think, I think being in major junior and obviously the USHL, like, like the one thing that, that sometimes gets neglected is the fact that, you know, like these kids, like they, they strive for feedback from their NHL team. Like they want to be there. They want to get better. They'll work as hard as they possibly can to live that, um, that dream of theirs and to, to make good on, on that draft pick. Like the Leafs do an unbelievable job with, with, you know, obviously Daryl Belfry's involved in their whole development staff. But when even back, back in whatever it was, 14, 15, 15, 16, like they had a whole crew, like they would go and spend time with every prospect. And I think that being on the same page from a, a junior perspective with a, with the NHL perspective, that's invaluable. Like, I, I can't think of a junior coach that wouldn't want feedback from the NHL team on, Hey, like, listen, this is what we feel like our guy has to work on. This is what, you know, can you help him with this? This is what we have, you know, and the Leafs go so far as to have clips and, and video and, and, you know, bilateral communication with everyone. Um, they've, they've always done a great job with that. And, and, you know, I'm sure with Nisey and, and, you know, everyone they have in their system, like, like they're dialed in, like they put a ton of resources into it. They put a ton of people, they have, they have really, really good people that, that work on that side of it that um, are in constant contact with all of their prospects. So Ryan, you're someone who's worked closely with Matthew Nyes before, you know about Kyle Dubas and how he likes to have a plan for prospects and their development path. What do you think the plan should be for Matthew Nyes moving forward? What does he need to approve upon the most? Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, Obviously the, the coaches in Tri-City have worked with him every day. I think, I think Nisey's on a great path. Like obviously his performance in the world junior showcase here is, is speaking for itself. Like I, I think from a, a leaf standpoint, like really he's going to a great situation in Minnesota. Um, honestly, like he's just got to stay on, on the program and, and every NHL team has a vision for their players. And I think, I think just how they set up their, communication like obviously playing to his strengths being heavy um you know he's going to have to get himself into scoring areas and identify space of of where he can get his he's got a lethal shot um like that's all stuff that they'll come up with from a a plan perspective um from the toronto maple leafs that will you know put him in the best position to succeed at minnesota and then ultimately however long he stays there like he's got a long enough runway when he's ready to to turn pro like they're gonna have a plan for him and i think I think Nisey is a, is multifaceted. I think he's um, a player that, that can, like I said before, fill many roles. And I think the Leafs just, you know, probably want to maximize that. Like, obviously you don't limit any of your prospects. And I think from the Leafs perspective, just putting him in the best position to, to have that success with the people around their development staff that will, will get him to that position. So keeping on this development track, and I think you have a really great perspective for this because you've essentially worked at every level possible. Yeah, too many. Now, yeah, <laughs> but it's fun. You have stories. You have stories. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't expect that you would know Nick Robertson personally, but he's kind of come up as this player. And 
and it's kind of driving me a little bit nuts in terms I see a lot of people that are that just like they project this guy he's going to start next season on the second line like like nothing he might even play with Matthews Marner like game one of 82 and now you had players like Connor Brown and Zach Hyman and even William Nylander in the AHL can you speak to what that why that development is important because I've been looking at people and basically my stance is you have to give Robertson like half a season in the A to start becoming a real pro like last season was weird like go be a pro for at least half a year and if he lights it up sure bring him up but starting him in the NHL just does not seem right to me no I think I think it's it's very interesting and I it's funny like coaching coaching is coaching development is development like this whole argument transcends NHL to AHL to no matter where you are, you have that, that kind of stepping stone of player development. And, you know, I think that there's no right answer for sure. Like there's no, the player is going to dictate where he's at. And I will say that like in my experience, the Maple Leafs probably surround their players and, you know, with the best possible resources to make sure that they get to where they want them to get to but ultimately the player is going to dictate where he goes um, <clears throat> from a Robertson standpoint. Like I remember coaching against him as like a, you know, obviously he's a younger guy, I believe, but, um, but like a kid like that, like he's super skilled, uber skilled. You know what yeah. I mean? Like Marner, you know, Marner is Marner. Matthew's like, obviously like unbelievable talents, but like there's a, there's a certain threshold of, repetitions and and the way people go about development for them to get ready for that and I remember probably the biggest thing I ever learned from Daryl Belfry is you know when when players are going through development it's it's field-based learning right like they have to figure out what works for them practice the game transfer and all that stuff like the kid's gonna Nick Robertson's gonna end up putting himself in a situation, whether it's in the American league for half a year or the NHL, like he's going to dictate that based on how fast he can figure out what he can do in the NHL. Right. So a third liner in the NHL, it might take 150 reps to figure out what he's doing and what can be translated. Mitch Marner, it it probably takes 12 William Nylander. It probably takes eight, you know, and that's why it's so interesting. Like working with Daryl Belfry for me, had such an impact on how I saw the game and how I thought about the game, because like everyone can probably not get to the same level, but they can get to places that they can have success, but it takes totally different thresholds of, of repetition to get people there, you know? And that's kind of how, like, I've looked at it. Like you can build your curriculum and things like that, but people have to graduate through things. And it's no different with a guy graduating from the AHL to the NHL. Like, we had Jordan Cairo in St. Louis. He's going to, he just signed an extension in St. Louis. It took him some time to figure out what he can do as a pro, what he can get away with, where he needs to be. And ultimately they'll figure it out for the most part, those high end talents, but you can't, you can't rush the process just because you want to force a guy into a role. And, and the Leafs definitely do not do that. Especially for a guy who, like he not only was it a shortened season, he missed time last year. Like, sure. like you have to be weary of of cheating the process and, and the negative ramifications. Carew's a good example. He had a really good year this year. Yeah, and, and he was a guy that when honestly, and he'll tell you this, like Ruzi, Ruzi was in San Antonio. Like it took him it took him 20 to 25 games to even figure out how to be a pro. You know, and 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 he would tell you that today. Like and and he 
didn't get frustrated. He embraced it. He loved being in San Antonio and, and obviously not love. You want to be in the NHL, but you know what I mean? Like he wasn't mad about it. He did his yeah. thing. He, and then by the end of the year, like he was doing his stuff that we saw in Sarnia, like he would get two breakaways a game. And now it's like, okay, how do I finish these breakaways? You know, and that's the next step of the process. So, you know, I think the, the highly skilled guys, the guys that think it differently, like Robertson and Marner and, and, Kairu, like th- those guys, like they'll figure it out, but you can't rush it. And, and, and when things happen, like, it's not like this make or break, Hey, Robertson has to play on the second line. It's like, Hey, let's make sure he's ready. Like I always use the example with my guys at, at a younger age, like no one wants to eat raw chicken, right? Like <laughs> you eat raw chicken, you get sick. If the chicken's cooked, right? Like I'm eating all day. You know, and, and, and I've that's never heard of, that expression before, but I love it. Yeah. Like, like, like no one wants to eat raw chicken. So arrive when you're <laughs> arrive when you're supposed to and, and be, be perfectly cooked and you'll, you'll be a wanted commodity for a long time. So we were talking about this before we started recording, how you worked with the Marley's team that had William Neal and Derek and Andreas Janssen was on that team yeah. on, on defense. There are a bunch of big names here. And I'm now. Yeah, Dermot Durant, Hall. Travis Dermot yeah, should have been there. Yeah. Halsey, we signed out of like the ECHL. He was great. How funny is so, that guy? On as an aside, I have to ask: is like, is he hilarious? Because he's had a few interviews where I'm like, this guy seems like he's he's yeah, a good guy in the room. I mean, <laughs> he's just a laid. He's laid back. He's great. Halsey's unreal. I wanted to ask you a few questions about that team because sure. that was a team I got strangely attached to because there wasn't much to watch as a Leafs fan in 2015-16. Sure. You didn't want to watch too many of the, the Leafs big league actual games because Mark Arcabello and Brad Boys didn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence as, a, as an NHL fan. So I spent a lot of time watching the AHL team. I spent a lot of time going to the Rico Coliseum, watching William Nylander develop, watching Kasperi Kapanen develop, watching some of these young players who... I was fascinated to watch their progress throughout the season. And it's interesting talking to someone like you, who it's, it's literally your job to track player development and help them with that process. Watching some of these Leafs who have now grown into professional NHL players, and especially someone like William Nylander, who despite his elite talent, there have always been frustrations about some components of his game. And I think he answered a lot of those questions in a recent playoff performance by dominating both ends of the ice. I'm curious what it's like, being behind the scenes working with players like that and what you kind of learned from that process yeah I mean again it goes back to the you know the the like I think that year we called up a majority of those guys for a chunk of games right after right after the trade deadline after the trade deadline yeah so I, I remember like and and I think honestly like it set those guys up for, for success and sending them back down was the best thing that you could do. Cause like you said, like that was a tough year. I think everyone took pride in what they did. Like no one, like, you know, you, you mentioned Arco and, and Boise, like I was a stick boy with Boise, the Providence Bruins, like those are great guys. <laughs> and they, and they, they worked unbelievably hard and it was, it was a tough season for sure. But there was never a day that, I mean, there were a lot of one goal games and, and two goal games and, but you know what, those kids, like they needed to go through and they still are going through the experience of playoffs and being a top dog and, and, and fighting through those, those grinding situations. And, you know, you look at like Brownie and those guys, I mean, they've all had pretty good success, right. For the most part, like that team was a really good team. That was, I mean, obviously the league was excellent. The, the, the competition was great, but but that team, I mean, if you don't have Willie go through that as a young guy, I, I mean, he, you need that. Like this playoff experience was 
no doubt subconsciously or consciously enhanced by that year. Right. I mean, it just, you, you know, it's funny, even when you coach, like people are like, yeah, you have to have head coaching experience. Well, how do you get head coaching experience? You've got to be a head coach. You know what I mean? Like Willie, like he's got to learn how to win as a player in the American league. And that's going to translate maybe not a hundred percent, but it's going to translate to the NHL. So his success that he had this year in the playoffs, like he, you know, he went through that already, right? Like he, he went through that in the American league. And, and I think a lot of these guys like Marner Matthews, like, yeah, they haven't gone through that success all the time in the, in the NHL, but they're going through it now. Um, and it's going to take time. And, and that's, you really can't like, you just can't rush it. You know what I mean? Like the, that experience for Hyman Brown, all those guys is so important for them moving forward and you can't put a price on it. This is the thing going back to a sec of what I think about with Robertson where I'm like, go get some, like, go be the guy. Like you'll, if you're on the Leafs and even if you black out and have an unbelievable rookie year, you're like, maybe their sixth best forward fifth. Sure. Like, like go be, go be the best, go be like number one of one for like a season in the A and a really good league. Yeah. And, and like learn, you know what we, I, I, I tell this story all the time too. Like, and you know, this is nothing against anyone, but I remember when I was with the Islanders, we drafted Nino Niederreiter fifth overall. And he, I believe it was fifth. You guys can fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was fifth. <laughs> we'll and, edit it if not. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Nino could have gone back to Portland and been the captain on a team that, I don't know what, who won the Memorial Cup that year, but, but was right there for the Memorial Cup. He could have captained Team Switzerland um, in the World Juniors. And, you know, we, we decided right or wrong to keep him in the NHL um, as a fourth liner. And he played seven to 10 minutes a night and going like, you can't get that time back. You know what I mean? Like you just can't get it back. And, and if you go back and you are put yourself in those offensive positions or on the power play or being a leader, like those are things that you can never get back as a player. And, and you know what, like, capping and going through having to be a grinder on Rich Clune's line that year or Willie Nealander having to be the go-to guy that need, we need a big goal in game seven or whatever. Like, like those are experiences that, you know, for better or worse, like you have in the back of your mind, you're not getting rid of those. You can't change that. And I think that obviously as people go through the processes of whatever they're going through in their career, it's okay. Like it's okay to be put yourself in a different situation and you might have to play a different role in the NHL. Like you look at a guy like Andy Hilbert, Andy Hilbert led our team in Providence and scoring in the 0405 lockout year and then had to change and be like a grinder NHLer. but you know what? He did it and he made a decent career for himself. So like going back on experiences that you've had is, is always a great thing. Like you can't teach that. So Ryan, you do a lot of video work and I'm sure you did that with those Marley's players yep. that we've mentioned, Nylander, Hyman, Janssen and company, my boy, Josh Levo. I'm Lovely. Curious, hey, he's always been my guy. Even when he was playing what, 10 games that one year and had he's the man points. Thir- I think he had 10 points in 13 games. Yeah, he, yeah, how yeah, how come he never played here? Oh, it's disappointing. Very disappointing. I have to ask just even if I don't get an answer, I just, I have to ask for the, for the listeners. <laughs> timing. I think there's a few country songs. Timing's everything, man. Like I, I, if it didn't coincide timing. with the Matt Martin signing, I guarantee you he would have played more games, but odd man out that year, unfortunately, yeah. I wanted to ask you when it came to those players, what video clips are you pulling up and, and discussing with them? Because they're obviously 
high-end hockey players, they know when they've made a mistake, they know when they've done something good. But if you're trying to show them specific clips to help them improve their game, what are you pulling up on a day-to-day basis? You know, it's interesting. That's a great question. I, I think as a staff, like you have an identity that you want to, you want to, you know, portray to the players. You have an identity you want to be as a team. I, I think, and that is ever evolving. So I'm sure when I worked with Sheldon a, a, a time ago, like it's changed a ton from then, but like, we focused on those guys with those guys, like teaching them offense and identifying space, right? Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot more space on the rink than you think. And I think like identifying an opportunity to jump through a window and attack a weak side defenseman where the safe play might be to chip a puck in or dump a puck in. Right. And, and, and really like, even, you know, one of the bigger things that I learned from Sheldon and, and those guys you need to be able to identify space on the rink. So being able to teach the, the like, or show those players or do something where you're teaching your players how to identify space to me is the most important thing, right? Because if, if the D's up on you and the space, like I always say, if the D's in your face, where's the space? Like it's obviously behind them. Right. And someone's going to go get that puck. So it, it's, that was the thing that I remember. I, and I can tell you a story about Sheldon, like when Sheldon first got the Marley job and I was green as hell. Like I'm talking about, I had no idea what I was talking about. Like he, <laughs> taught me, he taught me so much, but I remember sitting on the go train from Oakville. Like he didn't have a car his first couple months in, uh, in Toronto. So we would carpool together to the rink or sometimes we would take the, the go train, uh, to the Rico, right. Cause you get off and you just walk. Yeah. Exhibition. It's right there. It smells like horse poop around there, oh, but yeah, so bad, but you know what? Like, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, but no, I remember we, we had this, we had this, we had these iPads and and on obviously our video system, we would, it would sync to the cloud. So everything we did on the, on the iPads would go back to the office. So we could just take our iPads like on the go train. And I remember Sheldon one day, he showed me the screen and he goes, Hey, what would you do with this puck? And I go, I don't know, I'll probably chip it in. And he goes, man. And he, he blew it up and he highlighted this area of dice. He goes, look at the space. He's like, we've got to get the puck to this area. And that's like, I, till this day, like I do that with my players. Like I'll put a, I'll stop the video and I'll be like, Hey boys, where's the space here? And you know, people are like, well, we should put it behind them or whatever. And I'm like, guys, look at this. Like, let's get the puck here. And I think like teaching young skilled players, you know, even not so skilled players, like if you can make something happen that normally doesn't happen with what they do, that's development, you know, and like Willie Nylander, like getting in when you watch the Leafs play and how they manipulate space and go through the neutral zone and bump pucks back and change the angle, change the point of attack. That's development. If you can, if you can have success at that more times than not, that's what you're trying to teach those guys at the younger level. And, and I think that was the big focus with those young skilled guys was, Hey, like, let's look at the game. Like, let's, let's get you to, to add more layers to your onion. I'm curious if you guys had a stance on this because I've heard mixed things from different organizations or whatever philosophies you want to call it. Were you big on showing players highlights of or clips or whatever you want to call it of players not even on the team? Like you might say, look at the way Roman Yossi like activates as a, as a fourth forward or some organizations sit there and say like, no, we don't want to show them other guys. Like we want to focus on ourselves and what we're doing. Like, like how did you guys what was your stance? Yeah, that's, that? that's really interesting. Interesting question. Like, I, I think that every coach is different. 
I think that more often than not, those clips from other teams and other players are probably behind the curtain. Um, but you're definitely watching them. You're seeing them, um, especially now with like Instat. Like, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but like Instat and how you can pull up. Like, I can sit here and pull up Roman Yossi's last 70 game breakouts. You know what I mean? Do you want, do you want to explain Instat for listeners right now? Just yeah, read, so- like, I quickly. Yeah, Instat's like an analytics program that a lot of people use. There's a ton. There's Sport Logic. There's Iceberg. But like, I use Instat right now. But Instat basically breaks down puck touches and a bunch of different data that you can pull up on demand from U15 to the NHL. And and I think for us as coaches, like you're always watching that stuff. Like, okay, Carolina leads the league in shot attempts. Like, what are they doing different? Um, you know, whatever. Like, like you always kind of look at those things. But Instat provides like a one click you pull up whatever you want. And I, I think you're always looking at things like that as a coaching staff um, where, okay, how do I, how do we get a little bit better? How do, what, what can we maybe trigger something? And, you know, one plus one is three and here we go. And, and, and off we go and we're trying to teach something else, but, but that's kind of where behind the curtain, you're looking at that stuff. And then you're trying to find opportunities that you can show your team. And it doesn't always have to be correct, but maybe it's like, Hey, this is us. What else do we have here that we can, we can do, you know, and and more often than not, you're showing your team. And I think guys that resonates more with guys. I think at younger levels showing NHLers and and college players, uh, major junior players probably resonates more because that's their immediate goal. Right. Um, You know, we show an identity video in tri city and, and with the younger teams, every year that is just more away from the puck, like how we want to be in our identity and, you know, great teammates playing hard, being coachable, blocking shots, just things that just are non-negotiables. Um, but I think that when you're talking to your players, generally speaking at the older levels, it's always about you. And when you brought up Instat, that leads to one of my obsessions, which is trying to find a way to blend video and numbers because there's so much information out there. There's so many data points that you can go to if you're trying to evaluate a player. And then if you're trying to use video, again, there's so many different clips that you can pull. I've always liked to joke in the past that if I wanted to make a certain player look bad, I could do it by pulling up a bunch of his bad clips. And if I wanted to make a not so good player look good, I could do it by pulling up all of his goals and assists. But you want to try to make a fair evaluation of a player. So when you're dealing with all this data, whether it's information and numbers or whether it's qualitative information like a video, how do you balance that? Because you want to arrive at the right conclusion. That's our goal at the end of the day. Sure. But you're mixing with two different types of information and with players, how are you communicating that information? Yeah, I, I think for me, what and listen, you can get 40 different answers from 40 different people here. But my, my thought is that analytics are a way to just, they help you make sure that your eyes aren't lying to you and your, your, your emotions and irrationalities are, aren't taking precedent over what you make as a decision as a coach. Right. So for me, like I have a subset of things that I look at all the time, you know, like obviously for me, like my big things are controlled exits, breakouts, controlled entries, uh, puck possession, like Pat, like one thing that I'm huge on is passing percentage. Like if you look at guys making plays on their backhands, like doesn't happen a lot. Right. So trying to get guys better at that, but like there's a subset of things you look for as a coach that are important to you. Um, You know, 
I ran the power play in the Sioux. My biggest, and this is from Kyle, like my biggest analytic for success was unblocked shot attempts, right? So I was, I was harping on my players to have quality unblocked shot attempts. And, and it's something that, that it's different for every coach. And it's something that, you know, I think when you, when you get into it, you want to make sure that you're, you're, I'm sorry about my kids right now, by the way. Hey, oh, it's a pandemic, <laughs> man. What can you do? <laughs> no, but I think as a coach, you want to, you want to make sure that you're, you're consistent in what you're doing. Right. And, and like for my guys and, and our guys, like, I don't think you give the players too much information. Like they have to play on instinct and seeing the game and reading the game. Like it's more of a coaching thing where it's 100% valid. And I, I use it every single day. And for the players, it's great. It's like, Hey dude, like your average shift length is a minute 32. Like that's too, you know, get off the ice. Right. Like, like, come on. Like this isn't me telling you this is like actual stuff, but you know, players now actually, especially the ones coming up here, like they're used to it. They're content driven. Everything's on Instagram, everything. Like they're not afraid of the data anymore. Right. And, and, and the players, when analytics first became this buzzword, you know, Kyle got scrutinized for everything. Like players were afraid of it. Coaches were afraid of it. No one understood it. Now the players, like when you show them shot attempts, like they're like, Oh, nice. Or, Oh shit. You know, like we need to do better. Like, yeah. um, but I think it's, it's the same thing with any social norm, like hockey norm, like the culture's changing a little bit. Like, like from an analytics standpoint, like these guys are growing up in it now. So just five years from now, we're good. Uh, you brought up an interesting point there, which was going to be my question of how much you guys actually tell players versus how much you, you learn for yourself and then kind of figure things out because there's often a number of stats or whatever that are, are thrown around and you can call whatever you want. And I'm like, there's just no way you can go to an NHL or with that. Like, right. That like you, you probably have to keep a bunch of it in house and then just try to make decisions. And you're not framing it necessarily in that these are the numbers and here's what we're trying to get the number to. You're just saying like, we need to get better at this to make our overall game better. I assume. Yeah. If you're, if you're a coach and you take a spreadsheet and throw it at a player, like he's going to laugh at you. Here's your RAPM. Yeah. Like if you try to do that, like I would laugh at, like I would, that would like, that's the dumbest thing you can do. Right. But there is a way to disseminate what you're trying to say. And like, Hey, listen, like it's very, it's the more you can put it in as like a just person to person relationship. Like, Hey, listen, man, like, I think like, these are the areas you're having success from. Like, let's work on a couple of things to get you into those areas. Like, what do we need to do? Like, let's watch some video. Like it's got to be like a laid back, like, and they know what you're doing. They know that you've done your work. Like every coach in the world works his butt off now. Like there's no, you know, everyone knows what you're doing, but from an analytic perspective, like I think everyone's afraid of it being used against you. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, like this is your course. This is your, everyone's afraid of it being used against you. It's really got to be like a, a two-way street where it's like, Hey man, like, let's like, this is what you're really good at. Like, let's try to get you from here at these other areas to here. And then where you're really good at, like, let's, let's add it, add to it, you know? And I, and I think from that perspective, I think people are probably getting way better at it, you know, like being a lay person when they, when they communicate to guys, but um, yeah, there's, there's just, you have to disseminate everything. Right. So we talk about numbers and video and I, and I wouldn't think that you would have an in-depth, you know, knowledge on, on the Leafs power play, but Holy cow, man. Like we've watched it two years, just fall off a cliff essentially in the second half of the season. And it's basically been 
borderline unplayable in the playoffs, like to the point where you're like, I don't even just keep your hand down if they trip us. Like we'd rather just keep the five on five going. Like, like what's happening here? I, you know, Sheldon. I mean, he has to be losing it. I, I haven't watched it that in depth. Like I, I enjoy watching the Leafs because I, you know, but I, I haven't watched their power play that in depth. I think I will tell you that from coaching the power play, coaching the power play is probably the most frustrating thing because it's so much easier to break something than it is to make something. I mean, think about what we're talking about. Like you, you have to have so many things go right. And, and if you look at like how power play goals are scored and, and I mean, you're talking about inches here, right? How do you think they would go about fixing it? Because I can't imagine that Keith is sitting like there this summer and he's like, well, I'll tackle it once the season starts. Like, I'm sure oh, I'm he's sure been Sheldon, on it. <laughs> Knowing like, Sheldon, he's watched every power play from every team for the last 30 years in his right? office. Um, <laughs> like, I think the biggest key to the power play is getting guys in the right spots. You know, I like, agree. like for me, like yeah. I'm a big proponent of guys coming downhill on their forehand side. Like I, I don't like the one timer. There's probably four guys in the world that can hit their one timers. So they did that quite a bit when you were the video coach with, with Matthews and Nylander then if I, if my timing is right or what it might've been just right after. I think it was right after, but but, coming downhill, you're saying. Yeah. On the forehand, like Matthews and Nylander were just playing pitch and catch out there and it'd be like, okay, it's your turn to like skate down five strides and rip one. Yeah. And then alternate to me. That's, that's, you know, that's the biggest thing. Like I've always done that. Like I like my guys coming downhill and, you know, obviously, you know, when Jimmy Hiller was there, they hit that high tip all the time. Like it was, it was pretty dangerous. Um, But again, like there's so many things that go into it, man. Like running a power play is, is it's infuriating because, because one bad bounce, one bad pass, one pass that's off. Like if you're on your one-time side and it's not in your wheelhouse, like how many guys can hit that? Ovechkin, Stamkos, Kucherov, like probably that's it. When you talk about guys being in their right spots, how much of that, if at all, is is like literal like people management? And I don't want necessarily want to say ego management because, you know, I don't want to make assumptions on anything. But sometimes I'm watching guys and I'm like, this guy, like, let alone is not in the right spot, shouldn't even be on this unit. Yeah. And I think like, listen, like every <clears throat> there's there's a lot, uh, obviously, like you guys, like being in Toronto, I understand like you guys understand how much goes into it, right? You've had enough people on this podcast. Like there's so much that goes into to trying to get guys into the right spots. And, and honestly, a lot of it is just like maturing. A lot of it's just figuring it out. Now there are, there is a huge element of people management, like everyone coming up through junior college. Played half wall. They all played half wall. Played everyone played the half so getting a guy to buy into playing the net front is like, I mean, it's, it's like running for governor. Like you're yeah. like, hey, listen. <laughs> I remember I did it with Zach Sinition in the Sioux and I'm like, Sandy, like, I'm telling you, man, like, this is like a good spot. You're going to, you're going to score some goals. You're going to set up people, uh, you know, and ultimately like Sandy loved it, you know, and, and, and it's just having the conversations of, again, like with anything, like, pro athletes they have egos they've always been the half wall guy they've always been the guy that the power plays run through and it just comes through understanding the plan the process how you're part of it and and why you're good at it and and how that suits you and ultimately until you have success in those spots it's never going to be a full sell but when you start getting guys like to buy in and, and really a power play should be replaceable parts honestly 
Like you should be able to replace each other, especially on a puck retrieval or, or whatever. But, you know, ultimately like it takes success to have guys buy in. And I think until you like one day it'll click and people will be like, yeah, this is what we're doing. And, and hopefully you don't, as a coach, as a coach, you don't want to have to change your power play ever. You know, you're like, yeah, boys, let's go. I remember, you know, in the, in the suit, we had Morgan Frost, Barrett Hayton, um, uh, was Sandine up top? Uh, no, it was actually Connor Timmons. Um, Boris Kachu just got traded. Yeah, I mean, we like yeah. we, that power play was like 38% in the OHL playoffs. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, boys, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You could put a monkey behind the bench and he would have been fine, you know. Meanwhile, you put guys, you're like, you have to go in front, and they're like, I don't want to take clappers off the ankle and get cross checked in the but kidneys. That, like, like, for me, that was Taylor Radish, and I was like, Raddy, like like how does this work and he's like yeah i love it and he's like going behind between the legs like roof and pucks like barrett hayden was in the middle frosty was coming down no like it was like bing 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 i mean i still show that power play video to my power plays like it was insane and then we had sandine and hollowell running a spread on the other unit and it was we had guys going all over the place it was awesome did jvr make it cool to stand in front of the net for these guys in ontario (laughs) that's 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 a i think jvr like when you really boil it down like JVR did make it cool. I mean, he was, he was the first one to actually like, I mean, I shouldn't say first one cause I don't know that, but JVR was making like high end plays in front of yeah. me. I, th- I think sometimes you're sitting there as a coach and you're probably gritting your teeth. You're like, really? Like you actually had to put that through your legs on that play. Like you couldn't have just done something else, but you go, I kind of have to sit there and give it to him because he's taking a pounding like 90% I mean, of the time, like give him a play. play Oh, sometimes it is, but sometimes you're like, that made no sense whatsoever, but I got to give it to him. I, I got to give him a moment. Level of the players now, though, every guy can do that now. And if it's a, if oh, it's yeah. there to get the angle of the shot and to get it up and worst case scenario, it's a rebound. That's a good play. It's For not sure. a bad play in terms of like actually being able to pull it off. Sometimes just a bad player is like, that literally made no sense. Like, don't do that again. Right. I mean, but- there's times <laughs> you're like, really like put that one in back in your golf bag and save it. You know, yeah. like, you're taking out the sandwich on the team, man. Like, but you're like, yeah. I got to give it to him. He's sacrificing in front. Like I got to give him like some joy once in a while. For sure. And I think the biggest thing for a power play is being a threat in all five positions, right? Like, like you're outnumbering a, a, a guy. There's so much, so much good coaching going into the penalty kill. And really like you, you want to talk about offense, like offense comes from two on ones and breakdowns, right? Yeah. On the penalty kill, you take a log off the fire and you don't even care about pressure. Like you're, you're trying to, okay, let's play this two on one. So that actually creates less, I guess, randomness. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's actually like five on threes are ridiculous because they just stand in a triangle. So those are the hardest power plays to score on. Cause you're like, all right, they're not moving. So what, like, what are we doing? Those teams that are, that are smart. I know I've talked to Ian before on this podcast. Like if your D man is, like not pretty much on the top of the circle line on a five on three. Like, I don't know what you're doing. Like the zone should be so small where like, like Kale McCarr basically just stands at the top of the circle with his stick up in the air. He's like, if somebody feeds me, yeah. Like if somebody feeds me, I'm going to murder this puck. I mean, I think you, I think if you, if you take a look at a lot of maybe not five on four, but five on three goals, a lot of times comes off a rebound or a shin pad or a broken play. Like, like you have to, there's a lot of randomness that goes into it, which is being in the right spots. But I, I think from a power play perspective, it's like, you know, having structure, but being able to 
I mean, guys, let's be honest, like having the players to yeah, and the Leafs have elite yeah. players, but like having the players to, to get comfortable, to, to do something a little different, like, yeah, you can have your structure as a coach on the power play, but you want your high end guys to do something that go, Oh yeah. Like that's pretty good. You know, like whether it's switching up top or going low and scissoring, like you need to have elite minds on the power play. So when we, so shifting just a little bit from power play to another P word playoffs where the Leafs have sure come up short a few years. Now I don't want to kind of get into a breakdown of what's happened in the past five years in terms of who they played and the matchups and whatever, but do you think that like, is there like a mental hurdle that they have to get over here at this point? Like, like it's five in a row for the core. I mean, three with Tavares. Yeah. I mean, two, I, two and a half really. I mean, cause he wouldn't play this year, but like, that's got to get to them at this point now. Right. Like that, that's got to be something they address and kind of carry with them. Yeah. I mean, internally, I'm sure that they're, I'm sure that they, they know that. Right. I, I honestly think like, I don't, I don't know how much, I don't know how much Kyle and those guys would be worried about that. Like, like I think every season, every game, every series is so different. I think people underestimate the amount of luck and, and perfection that goes into winning a playoff series. Like, like I, you know, and this isn't a a cop out or an excuse or anything like that, but like, it is so hard to win. And, and I think that you have to take everyone different. And if you start stacking them, like I get it, you can say what you want, but every one of those teams were different and every one of those teams were built differently and, and had different breaks. I mean, like guys, like, Tavares got need in the head, right? Yeah, he missed the whole series. I mean, they're missing guys. And that's like, that he's is not a fourth so, liner. <laughs> right. He's, he's John Tavares. Right. Like that's so unlucky for them. Right. They had, you know, their goaltending was different. Like they, and, and that's not, again, it's not an excuse, but like they know what they need to do to win. Like they went through the same thing when they were the Marlies, right? Like not to say that it's, it's the same, but like, you know, oh yeah, the puck possession, blah, blah, blah. The system doesn't work. I mean, it works. They won with the Marlies. They evolved. They filled the pieces in that they had to fill in. The same thing is going to happen with the Leafs. Like you have some of the smartest people in the world at their jobs. Like they will get over the hump. It's just a matter of sticking with it. So we had Bruce Boudreaux on. Ian, I'm sorry. I know you're still here. I'm sorry. I have to ask this question. Sorry, sorry. I'm just looking at Andre Kasha's own entry number. Sorry, <laughs> about that. just in the background here. Just going. But Ian, you'll remember we had Bruce Boudreaux on, and he was talking about when he was with Anaheim and they played Chicago, and and Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry were like unbelievable in sure. those playoffs. And and you know he basically said like we we probably should have won that series. We we probably should have went on to like challenge for the cup that year. Getzlaff and Perry I'm paraphrasing but he was like basically they were they were awesome for the first five games but then in game six and seven they were simply okay and Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane were incredible like you know he's pretty much saying like there's only so much I can do like if their best players are incredible and our best players are not like you like you can't make up for that like that's just the reality that's that's why people pay the top players so much money in the league as you know how how do you think that they go about if at all working on that kind of thing with Matthews and Marner, because honestly, if they're being honest, top to bottom in that organization, like Matthews and Marner were not good in game six and seven. Sure. Right? And, and I think, I think both of those players would, would, would probably, I mean, they're not stupid. Like they know, like they know that they have to, to be the best players. Like that's not lost on them. They completely understand that. And I think, 
again, we're talking about a young group uh, for all intents and purposes. Like I get it. Like they've been good for a while, but I mean, we're talking about a, a relatively young group from an NHL success standpoint. And again, that's not a, a, a cop out or an excuse, but these guys will learn how to win. There's no question. Like they'll, they'll, they'll go through these experiences in one day. Like they're going to get sick of losing or, or, or mentally just be like, Hey, like, like I've grown, like they're going to subconsciously grow and they're going to win. And then all of a sudden they're winners. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a, a bounce off someone's ass or someone's shin pad, but like one, like, like Bruce said, like, yeah, their two players are better than our two players. And that's going to happen. That's human nature. That's why sports are so awesome. Yeah. The expectations are there. Toronto is the best city in the world to play hockey. And it's the best city in the world to, to coach in because of the expectations. And eventually like those guys will get over the hump, but just again, it's so hard to win. I mean, it's like, it's, in, it's so hard. Narratives can be so interesting in sports. Ovechkin can be a one dimensional loser until he wins a cup. And now 100%. Clayton Kershaw is a choker until he wins a ring. And now again, Oh, hall of famer. So it, it can be frustrating when we look at these lease players and the, the jokes write themselves year after year. It's unfortunate. I don't like writing about these game sevens, believe it or not. Sure. I still no. do it. Right. I'm wondering when it comes to this team, you've brought up the style of play that Dubas has with his teams, had it in the Sioux, had it with the Marlies, now has it with the Leafs. It's this idea of owning the puck, puck possession, creating space and attacking space. And I think when you have creative puck handlers like a Mitch Marner, like a William Nylander, Austin Matthews has been known to stick handle a defender once or twice in a hockey game. How do they manipulate space as a team? Because I'm just fascinated by the idea of Sheldon Keefe coming into this team and you saw it right away. The style of play drastically changed from Mike Babcock to Sheldon Keefe. I, I wrote an article when it first happened about how it almost reminded me of soccer, how there's more interchanging and the manipulation of space, not just in the offensive end, but even in the defensive end, players are moving around more often, swinging back, creating passing lanes, and then you're trying to attack up the ice as a unit. I'm fascinated in the, the Leafs approach to dictate their style of play on their opponent because people have brought up the idea of, Oh, you know, the Columbus can come in and play their trap set up. They can get five guys behind the puck and that's how you beat a skilled team like the Leafs. But at the end of the day, I think the best teams in sports, they force you to adapt to their style of play. And I think that's how the Leafs are eventually going to get this done. If they do do it. I think the style of play gets this vibe. Like uh, you're trying to recreate everything, but, but really if you, if you go through it, and understand it like you're stacking the deck in your favor as many times as you possibly can. Right. So, so when you're exiting the zone, like, can you exit five on three? Yeah. You're, you're probably, that's what you want to do. Right. You know, is it, you know, are, are different things riskier than others for sure. But at the end of the day, Sheldon and, and Kyle, and those, they're not telling guys to turn the puck over. Right. But it's, it's a process of teaching guys, you know, what you can do to stack the deck in your favor with the puck. And, and identifying space. And, and that doesn't happen overnight, but, but you're, if you can score the hardest thing to do in hockey is score goals, right? For sure. I, I would say, Absolutely. especially for the for sure. last two playoff runs. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Touche, touche. There's only a few teams that are consistently good at scoring like year after year. And then everyone else says, well, shit, we can't score. So we better learn how to play defense. Right. Like we, we, you know, when I was with St. Louis and San Antonio, I mean, they won the Stanley Cup playing a very heavy 
defensive, not defensive, but a very heavy style. Like they were getting pucks in, they were getting on the four check, they were protecting the puck, they were tracking their ass off, and they were defending inside the dots, owning the middle of the ice. Made you work for every inch. Like right. that, and, that and, and that's perfectly fine. Now, if you can play, if you can play a style that takes all of those points and concepts into account while manufacturing um, offense with the puck. Like that's, that's the golden goose, right? Like that's what you're looking for. Like how do we be the best at both? And that's what, I mean, that's what, that's what the Leafs are striving for. That's what, you know, I would say that more, some coaches are probably more comfortable playing a defensive style where it's like, Hey, listen, let's make them earn it. Let's not really do anything risky with the puck and that's fine. And it's worked and it's, it's, it's fine. Any system you teach is going to work if everyone buys in. I think this, this, the way they want to play is they just want to stack the deck and, and, you know, in my opinion, like play hockey the right way. Like, like you want to make plays, like you want to, you want to have guys feel comfortable, like making plays and, and, and owning the puck. And, and for me, like, they're just, they're just still immature in their process of that. And, and they know that they have to back check and track and box out and, and block shots take yeah, and it, like they know that they're not stupid like they're not trying to reinvent things but it is if you can manufacture that offense off the rush if you score one more goal off the rush right like that that wins you games if you yep. score one more goal with you know the d getting active in the offensive zone well yeah that's that's one more game you win right so it's just, it's the same thing in baseball, like manufacturing runs. Like you try to, in soccer, creating two-on-ones and, and stacking the deck in your favor. Like counterattacking off of changes of possession. Right. Like it's, 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 you know, to me, it's just, it's getting a group to perfect the style that you want to play and not having any weak links. And I think they're, they're, they're going to find that. It's just a matter of time. And I've seen it time and time again, work and it's great. And, and, you know, it, but I think that the, the style of play and the puck possession stuff gets overblown. Like, it's not like you're sitting in the office saying, we're going to change the game of hockey. You're just wanting to have the puck and, and make more plays and, and getting your skill. Like, go talk to a skilled player. There's not one guy in the world that doesn't want to play with the puck. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, no one wants to – Willie Nylander doesn't want to forecheck. I, like, he will – but like that, no one, no skilled player, no player in the world wants to forecheck. Some guys are better at it than others, and it makes it harder on others. I think teams. Zach Hyman wanted to forecheck. Well, Zach I, Hyman I think was he very, legitimately loved forechecking. But you know what? <laughs> Connor Brown might have got a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Like Brownie and Zach, like when we had them with the Marlies, like they got so much better at making plays. So they love that. Even as stuff. pros, it's something they've yeah. developed. Hundred percent, and and that's you know it drives me crazy when you. Like Zach Hyman isn't just a forechecker. He makes some pretty no. damn good plays too. He had that end-to-end goal against Winnipeg this year where I was like, what just happened? Like Right. Now, Zach Hyman has a innate work ethic that probably can't be matched ever as far yeah. as dog on a bone. But like at the end of the day, like you you just you want to compliment your players and you want to give your players a style that they want to play in. And I can tell you, like at the younger levels, like the way we play is like a huge recruiting tool because guys you have the rest of your life to dump pucks and chip pucks and things like that. Like guys want to make plays guys want to have the puck. Like you, why would you give up the puck when it's going to be a 50% chance you get it back, but 
there's a 80% chance that this works out and you still have the puck hundred percent of the time. If that makes sense. I just sounded like Ron yeah. Burgundy. But, uh, 80%, 80% of the time, of the time it works hundred percent. <laughs> right. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think that like, if you can teach how to stack the deck in your favor and make sure that you're playing with the puck, like you're going to, you're going to be fine. So I have to ask And I think this, I could, create an interesting response i don't know okay i feel i feel like sheldon keith is um he's not misunderstood i think he doesn't necessarily like i think people don't really understand him i think he kind of came in um on a team with high expectations in two very strange you know coming in halfway through the year when they were really bad and then having to go through this covid season and they haven't necessarily met expectations yet which i'm sure he would agree with yeah so i don't think people have necessarily really gotten to know him like what can you tell us something about Sheldon Keith that you don't think that like the general fan base knows or maybe understands or respects about him or something? Cause I, I feel like people don't necessarily know him. And, and I think there's a lot more there than, than people realize. Yeah. I mean, Sheldon, he's, you know, I don't know what the vibe is of Sheldon up in Toronto. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if there is one Ian. Like, I, like, I don't know. I don't think people necessarily think anything per se. I, I can tell you that there's no one that I've learned more about the game of hockey from than Sheldon Keefe. And I think that Sheldon and Kyle too, but I, I think he probably gets this from Kyle, but Sheldon empowers people to, to, you know, play to their strengths. And I, you know, I don't know what the players think, but I, I'm willing to bet that the players really like playing for him. Um, Sheldon's one of the hardest workers I've ever seen almost to almost to a point where like he, I mean, he knows he, he is a, a rocket science with the game of hockey, a rocket scientist. Sorry. What's but he like he, between periods? Does he talk to the team much or does he kind of let them do their thing? And then yeah, I mean, for a few, I mean, he's a, he's a tactical master in that sense. Like he, he identifies things and, and I guarantee you, like he delegates to his staff, like, Hey, like guys know what they're watching, what to bring up. And I mean, the seven minutes between the, the horn blow when the horn blows and, and you go meet with your team is, is quick. Yeah. Um, but I think Sheldon for me, like he is a tactical guy that like, he's very methodical in everything he does, every message he conveys, every, every point he teaches, like he's, he'll ask you a question and he's done 70 hours of research on it and he sees every perspective, right? So he's asking you to get your perspective, but he knows that the perspective exists and he's, he's, he's making sure that people are on his level. You know what I mean? From a, a standpoint of coaching or teaching. Um, but he is extremely well balanced. Like he's a, he's a, he's a guy that doesn't go off the handle very much. Um, at least in my experience, unless, unless Toronto's gotten to him. No, he seems very stoic behind the bench, to be honest. Like <laughs> yeah, I don't like see much from someone him. Someone put out a picture recently of his hair before he arrived in Toronto and his hair after Toronto and, gotten a little bit whiter i think there have been some stressful nights for him yeah when he lose round one two years in a row that's what happens yeah i think he might have used to dye it in the old days i'm not sure you can probably (laughs) you can probably you can probably rip him about that but no i i think sheldon like he's a very methodical person that's even keeled that that um doesn't get too high or too low and 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 i mean like the guy works harder than i've ever seen like he's 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 he know he breaks down every situation like i think he's a one of the things Sheldon does really well going back to like our analytics and our video breakdown, like Sheldon is very good at 
taking everything in the, in the cauldron and spitting out the five points that are important, right? So giving the players a, a clear and concise message of what they need to get better at, teaching it a very good way, a very solid way, and then moving on, right? He, I don't think he harps on the negative too much, um, but he's, he's an elite teacher. He's, he's an elite teacher and he works his butt off and he's, he's, he's someone that, yeah, he might be a little quiet, a little bit guarded, but at the end of the day, like, I don't know if I've met many people that don't like playing for him. I felt in the playoffs he at, at towards the end there, especially after they lost game six, that he was, he was essentially trying to like will them to a win. Like, like, like in terms of positivity and, and the way that they could view it, like the quotes between the t- game six and game seven were very much, you know, like, we always expected this would be tough. Like we're excited for the opportunity, like the, what you would expect to hear kind of thing. And like the team, like the team did not come out and play very well in game seven. And I'm not saying that's on him in, in any capacity. I think sure. the players have to be accountable to that. But I, I, I just got that sense where he, he probably knew to your point, like going through all those situations and I'm sure he could feel it to some degree with the team. Like they, like they were genuinely nervous. Like they, and they played like that. Like they, I don't know if you watch game seven, I did, but, but it was not like, that was not a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game that we've become accustomed to the past few years. Like that, like, it looks like he's really trying to combat like a mental block there. Like they I just mean, need something advocate, to go right. That's exactly a Toronto Maple Leafs game. And that's well, and it, it was a Toronto Maple Leafs game seven, games. but it wasn't a Toronto Maple Leafs game. Like that. We, especially that last season where they were very good throughout the regular season. Like they, they looked like a ghost of themselves. And I think he was just trying to sit there and, and say like, like, come on guys. Like, like you should be excited. This is a big game. This is a good opportunity. And I think, I think when you break Ian, what do you, what do you have right now? Can you break out the high danger scoring chances for that game seven? Oh, I, I don't want to, but I know that for the series, they're so heavily in Toronto's favor and it drives me insane. Okay. So so let's talk about that for a little bit. So game six, they got speed bag though for the first like like 40, first 50 two minutes. Periods, like, it, wasn't it was crazy. Close. Yeah. Yeah. In the third period, they played well, but I the, mean, the remember, first 40 was nuts. I remember watching game seven and they had, <clears throat> I mean, obviously the goals that, <clears throat> excuse me, Montreal scored. Yeah, it wasn't good. Were not great. Right. So, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, if you like look at that game from a, a, I mean, not scoring chance, but like a, a expected goals or whatever. Like, I mean, I bet you Toronto would be on top of that game, right? Yeah. The, the crazy thing is, I mean, they were getting shut out, right? Like they scored like a garbage goal and the game was essentially over, but like they, they got nothing. Like they, right. They so didn't create anything. Did you find it again? Oh, am I supposed to be looking this up right now? There's You're the so guy, man. It's not going to be Ryan or I, man. It's you. It has to I, be yeah, you. <laughs> I, I, I have these numbers in my head. I know the first four games, if you look at XG and some of the private models, it's the biggest differential we've seen in the last decade in the first four games of a series that was just so night and day. And I think he felt that way after game five where the scoring chances were okay. I'm sure the Leafs were probably even ahead and and then Galchina handed them a two on nothing to start overtime and that was that. But game six was insane. Game six was insane though because they got absolutely run over for forty, and but then they dominated that overtime and deserved to win that overtime and didn't probably. So, when so you get crushed the first ways. forty, you usually don't deserve to win the game. That's a fair point. No, so just to get back, like I think if you go to like Sheldon's message going into that game, I mean, as a coach, you have guys that are probably supremely frustrated. Your two best players or whatever Matthews and Marner, like they haven't, 
they're feeling it, right? Because it's human nature to feel it that they haven't produced. You have guys that have had chances every single night and Carey Price is playing unbelievable, right? And that's, again, it's not an excuse. You find a way to get it done, whatever. But, but like, I mean, watching, like, some of those scoring chances in the third period of the Leafs-Montreal game, game seven, like, those were, like, high-end scoring chances, right? And that happened all series. Like, after – there was a – what was the turning point of that series? Like, there was a pivotal moment where Carey Price, like, lights out. Montreal had some belief. But, like – I think that it all goes – you can't look at one sum of the part. Like, it's, okay, there's a hot goaltender. The best players aren't scoring. Your best – your captain got kneed in the head in a very scary moment. You've got other injuries on the back end. I mean, as a head coach, like, the only thing you're doing going into game seven is, like, like exactly what he said. Like, hey, like, let's play the game. This is great. Like, we only have one choice here. So – as much as the players might've been nervous or he was willing them, like at the end of the day, like you have a lot going against you. You have a lot going for you. Like that's what it's all about. And, and I think like truthfully, like when they do get over that hump and it might be a game seven win, hopefully it's a four game sweep. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, you're trying to will your players, but I don't, I bet you Sheldon was completely honest in what he was saying. Like, I, I bet you, he actually was like, Hey, I'm excited to, put this behind us and we're going to win the series tomorrow. And that's Sheldon. Did I you get the name? Cause I, I do have them, but uh, go for it. Go for it. Anthony, you can be stat boy for a chance. Let's go. What do you got? Yeah. So they at five on five, the Habs had 12 scoring chances, uh, four in the first period and eight against. So they outchanced them. And then the Leafs had the slight edge in second period, seven, five. And then of course the Leafs were ahead nine, four at that point, they were already losing. That's five on five where the Leafs came out slightly ahead in expected goals. Uh, yep. And then at, in all situations, the Habs were slightly ahead for the entire game. Okay. So that, that's what I meant about the first period. Like they came out and just super tentative. Right. Like, I think he had the pulse of the team on that one. I just, I don't know if he, and maybe there was no answer. I just, I think, I think the whole thing was just like, like you were saying, like it just kind of snowballed and, it I don't was know if either team had a high quality scoring chance in that first period. Yeah, the first like period was yeah, sludge hockey. Was, yeah, <laughs> I just I think guys like when you go through like again we go back to how hard it is to win. Like you you go through a pretty traumatic thing with Tavares, and again it's not an excuse. And you got guys injured, and you're you know I, I think a lot has to come together. And and you know in that you can point to a goalie making a save versus not making a save. Like there's a lot that goes into it. I'm not sure how much different they would play. I'm not, and you can ask Sheldon that, but I'm not sure what they would change. I'm not sure what they will change. Um, I don't think it's anything systematic. I think it's like, Hey, like this one thing is going to get it done. Like this one, like you got to block a shot. You gotta, you know, you gotta make a save. You gotta score a goal. You gotta do something to be a great teammate. We gotta have some juice. Like I think they're just still on the path. Right, Ryan, I want to get out of here on a positive because sure. the more we talk about the Leafs, the more we end up going into cynicism. It's just the natural direction. <laughs> oh, no, life. it's all right. It's all right. They're going to be they're going to be good here. I'm sorry, man. We're lifers. It's been, no, it's been I actually so texted, long. I texted Sheldon after they lost. And I said, hey, you're an unbelievable coach. You're going to win next year. Like you're going to like like he's like he's they're going to win. 
You got to send him a text tonight, man, and tell him that he's the next person on the podcast. You set the table, and and he's got to come on at sure. some point this summer. I'm not sure. That's <laughs> After that comment about his white hair, I don't know if it's happening. But we'll get him a just for men endorsement. It's Toronto, man. Like you win a few games, or, we'll yeah, we'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask one last question, just to get a fun little answer here. Sure. What's your best Kyle Dubas story? You've worked with him in the past. Everyone has a fun story. I'm curious what yours is. That yeah. you're allowed to say. Or even one uh, that, that he won't to say. Like, fight you for saying. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. I mean, I think probably the probably the funniest doobie story that I have is I, I obviously I lived in his I lived in his house in Sault Ste. Marie. Um my uh, my wife and and we had two kids at the time. And uh, there's two, two parts of this story. So the Sioux is the best place on earth. It's the best hockey town I've ever seen. Like, it's awesome. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it there. My kids had a blast. But so we lived in Doobie's house. Um, I think I might sell him rent, which he probably needs to collect on that. Grandma Doobie's uh, is coming after you. Watch out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we were, I remember one night, like, I'm, I'm laying in bed. And it's super quiet there. It's dark. It's quiet. There's nothing going on. And I hear, like, this... Uh, the script like this thing tip like this bang so i go out and i look and my trash cans tipped over and uh i look outside and there's a giant black bear like staring me in the face when i open the door so my wife's like throwing uh cans at it like like oh yeah it was right in my face. not like running or playing dead she's like i'm gonna throw cans at it i'm like yeah, it's a bear with like, a garbage can uh, yeah, I'm calling 911. She's throwing seltzer cans at the bear. Uh, I'm like, hey, I got a bear. Like, they're like, okay, is it? Do you feel threatened? I'm like, not really. It's just looking at me. So anyway, but my wife's throwing white claws at it. So I don't know. Maybe someone should come by. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so that was like one. And I texted Doobie. I'm like, hey, dude, like, what do I do about these bears? Like, do I have to like worry about my kids getting eaten? He goes, no, just put the trash in the shed, man. You're all good. But, but the, the most hilarious story I think is, is we, uh, so we were living in his house and I don't think he'd find this hilarious cause I'm sure he had to pay some money to get it fixed, but we were living in his house and like throughout the winter, we would hear like, you know, the scratching in the, in the roof and, uh, and, you know, slowly, but surely like there'd be like these little condensation bubbles along the side of the house. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And, and, you know, I'd, I'd text him and, and his dad, Mark lived in the, in the Sioux. So I'd be like, Hey, Mark, like, you got to come look at this. I don't know what's going on. Like there's, so then it started to get like brown around like the whole house. So we had this raccoon that climbed into the roof of the house and made a giant home in Doobie's house, like pushed all of the insulation up against the soffits, you know? Yeah. So nothing could escape. So it was creating this like condensation on the walls <laughs> and we couldn't figure Like I had a guy come out and like Doobie's like, what the hell's going on? Like, anyway, so I, I'm, I, you know, Doobie ended up having to like get this raccoon out of his house, but that's probably, I mean, just being him being my landlord was pretty hilarious. You know, like obviously he was doing big things and he got the job and I mean, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. Like we, he helped me a lot with a lot of things and, and obviously being in the Sioux and, and, he did, he did such a good job changing, changing Sault Ste. Marie into, into what it is today, a destination. And, um, he's, he's so well-renowned and he's such a great, great guy that helps everyone. Um, but anyway, that raccoon in his house, I, I don't know. I didn't, 
I didn't let it in. I tried. I didn't even know what the hell it was. So if he's mad at me for that still, then hopefully he's forgot about that. But. I'm still more fascinated about your wife throwing white claws at this bear. Well, it wasn't white claws. <laughs> it was like those LaCroix, LaCroix seltzers. So, listen, so the bear, honestly, the bear, it's looking at me. It just ate, like we had diapers. We had young kids. We had diapers. I think we had some like Boston pizza chicken wings in there. So anyway, we go like, you know, I get off the phone. I'm like, Hey, just let it do its thing. Like she's throwing the seltzers. I'm, I'm scared like behind her. Like, yeah, yeah, get it, get it. Yeah. Hold me back. Hold me back. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so the bear, like we go lay down in bed and the bear walks to the backyard and he's like taunting us now I'm watching it. And just like goes to the bathroom in the backyard. Right. And it's like the next day it took me 45 minutes to clean this up. I mean, it oh was my like, God. it was insane. And so it was like, Anyways, it was great. We lived on a ravine. I got like gloves and a snow shovel. Like, yeah, it was awesome. That's when you have to call Dubis, man. He's your landlord and just I say, I, I got an issue on the property. Can you, can you come address it? Yeah, I should have for sure. I mean, I probably left a little, left it a little bit on the table there, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome stuff. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate these stories, some great hockey insight and, uh, defense mechanism against a bear if i run into one yeah in the, in the you know what LaCroix seltzers just get it yeah <laughs> no i appreciate it guys I, I love how passionate you guys are up there i i love my time in toronto and um you know you guys are awesome so i appreciate you having me and um you know good luck here coming up and, and hopefully things get back to normal thanks man and good You've luck for your upcoming season in the ushl you guys have some good things going on yeah yeah we look to be a, Make sure a to pretty go good to team so i appreciate it and uh, hope to see you guys join the conversation right, sounds good ryan have a great night right. see you guys